And so I thought, okay, why don't I take this idea? But why don't I see, you know, instead of other people also starting their own newsletter, why don't we just work on something together? And then we can actually build something that's maybe a bit more sustainable. In this episode of How Now, we talk to freelance journalist, Michael Rancic. Michael's work focuses around emerging and DIY Canadian musicians. His fascination with low-level social mobilization that happens in the DIY community led naturally into the co-founding of the multi-stakeholder cooperative, New Feeling. The cooperative's membership is made up of Canadian music writers and community members and publishes a monthly selection of writing and criticism. We caught Michael for a chat back in November when they were very much in the development stages. We hope you enjoy the interview. Here's Michael. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. We're, we're wondering uh, to start things off, if, if you could give us a little background on how you got to the place you are in, in journalism, but also in life. Sure. It would probably start in like school. So I went to the University of Guelph uh, for a master's in English and English literature. Okay. And I don't know, I, I got to the point where I didn't see a future in academia uh, for myself. And I just started writing like music reviews for a, a, a WordPress blog for myself as a sort of procrastination thing. And I've always been really enthusiastic about music, but I was just sort of compelled at that moment. There was a lot of like new blogs sort of starting up at that time. This would have been like 2007, 2008. Yeah. And, and, and so I just started writing for myself and like just reviewing things that I was interested in and then sharing it with friends. And that kind of confirmed to me that I was really interested in turning this into something. I moved to Toronto in 2009 and didn't really have any sort of contact here or any ways into the music journalism craft. So basically took like other jobs in like customer service and stuff like that to um, pay the bills. And then slowly but surely started like I started like a Twitter account and started interviewing more people. And I felt like that was a good way to sort of force myself to have a deadline because people were sort of counting on me uh, to write and then publish something, which was good. And then uh, from I started sharing it on Twitter, started getting involved with the Toronto music community on Twitter. And that was a really nice way for me to sort of meet editors. And then I would, you know, introduce myself at shows saying, hey, I'm that that guy on Twitter. And that was a good way to, to sort of break the ice. And so I started freelancing part-time around 2010 and then really got into it in 2012. And then I started freelancing full-time around uh, 2015 or so. So now it's my full-time job. So roughly been doing it for 10 years. Was there, was there anybody that influenced along the way to to really dive into it anybody early on that you remember prodding you uh well i mean like vish Khanna was a fellow okay yeah u of g yeah. grad uh he had worked at like cbc radio uh for exclaim and <laughs> so i i think there was a sense among us at university of guelph like in the graduate program that a lot of us weren't going to continue on with like a doctorate and so they had like a seminar of people who had graduated out of the program and went to other fields. And Vish was one of those people, Vish and his, his wife actually, and she's involved in publishing. And those were kind of like two of the predominant areas like criticism and publishing that, you mm -hmm. know, 
seem to open up to people from our our program. So yeah, I'd say he was a big sort of influence there. And he was also like somebody who sort of convinced me to, you know, that Exclaim was a place that I should pitch when I was able to. And yeah, for sure. So you you kind of built up your experience and went from there. Yeah. So you, you started out in Guelph mm-hmm. and then you kind of slowly got into things. How did you form that passion for, for underground DIY kind of side of things? Uh, yeah, that, that came later, uh, probably when I moved to Toronto, maybe a little bit before. I, I can't quite like, I don't know, when you're a music fan, you start to like look for more obscure things, more things that you can sort of claim to be your own before anyone else does. So I started like paying attention to more underground music that way. And mm-hmm. this would have been around the time that like, fucked up were first uh, starting like coming out so uh, yeah. their sort of like DIY kind of hardcore punk approach was they would have all these different guests from Toronto um on their records like Austra or uh, Lullaby Orchestra and these were weren't people who I was immediately familiar with so I would look them up and it became this like constellation of related artists yeah. and yeah. that came like the Toronto music scene Owen Pallet and so that was a real nice entry point for me. And then when I moved here, I actually going to shows. So I remember like Adonis Adonis was a big one um, oh, because yeah. they just put on like a really tremendous show that at the time they were sort of like, they described themselves as like industrial surf rock. Uh, and it was just like a fun, mm. like kind of vibe. And and a lot of the, the noise rock stuff that was coming out of the time that those were the things that were happening in that moment that really sort of drew me into the aspects of like low level social mobilization around like small emerging artists and stuff. Well, that's really cool. How has your experience in journalism uh, changed? How, how has the landscape changed? How have you had to adapt? Sure. So, I mean, long before COVID, journalism has been in trouble for a while as mm-hmm. like yeah. a profession sort of broadly. Um, you know, in Canada, this has been sort of evident in the way that like local offices of American publications are closing. So like Thump uh, being sort of shuffled back into to Vice and Folding or uh, Fader had their Fader Canada outlet. More recently, Beetroot, uh, who are based in Alberta, yeah, yeah. they had a Toronto office and like put out like maybe three or four issues before they had to shutter. And there's there's fewer and fewer positions available. And what I really see happening is um, there's this push for like, there's less staff writer positions available. You know, Ben Rayner, the longtime music critic, yeah, the Toronto yeah. star just recently lost his job and they're moving away from full-time positions to freelance work, which means, you know, lower pay, uh, fewer opportunities. Yeah. A lot more competition and it eliminates the ability for us freelancers to like organize or have unions or representation. So there's a real sort of like undermining of the profession that's going on. And that was a a trend long before COVID and then having the pandemic really just sort of like kicked all of that into. Yeah, it it totally did. Did you, did you have any reservation because of that? You know, back in, in 2010, when you're trying to get into it, did you have that reservation? For sure. And I think the beauty of how I got into it was just like slowly. So I built up. So like I had the benefit and the privilege of having a full-time paid uh, customer service job with benefits that was able to help support yeah, myself yeah. and my, my, my wife. 
and you know, I have a full time like my partner's like full time uh, working as well. So I mean, those are real benefits, and those help sort of give me a, a sort of financial scaffolding mm-hmm. that would allow me right. to sort of like treat writing as a hobby until I built up all of the contacts and connections that allowed me to sort of like do this full time. So yeah. I knew going into it that it was precarious, but it kind of ebbs and flows. And when you're writing, sometimes it's easy to sort of get lost in it, right? Because you're so focused on producing work and and writing the, the pieces that you're doing in the moment. So I'm looking at things sometimes week to week, maybe sometimes three months ahead. And in that period of time, a lot can change. So I've gone through periods where I'm writing for a lot of great different places all at once. And then places will close, they will lose out on budgets, and then you kind of have to drum up more work. There's been sort of like a a rhythm to that, although precarious was, it was sort of unprecedented with with COVID in terms of like me losing out like half of my work overnight. Yeah, that's, that's wild. There's been a consolidation of of journalism uh, in Canada. I, I mean, on one hand, they're just trying to survive. But on the other hand, it's like, really doing a disservice to, to the population. And and in this case, music, the, the music scene. Yeah, exactly. And and it's it's frustrating because when the pandemic happened, there were these assumptions about, okay, the live music industry is hurting right now, but maybe everything will just kind of hit pause for a moment and then we'll be able to resume things later on. And it didn't really work like that. If anything, people started producing and releasing more music. And so I was really did, inundated yeah. with press releases and artists sort of reaching out to me saying like, hey, can you write about my stuff? And I literally had like one place to go with all of that. And, you know, there was so much great music coming out and there was no place for me to write about it. It feels like that was going on, like you said, for a while before COVID. But I mean, I blame I blame the Huffington Post for a lot, but I blame them for that, um, <laughs> amongst others, for for that very thing, that devaluing of the very profession of writing by making it a free thing that you just do because, you know, you want the exposure or something. They kind of remove the funding model for journalism and then it spread. It's like a cancer, this idea that, oh, you don't have to actually pay for the creative content. You just have to pay for the distribution and rollout. I'm wondering, as demographics are changing in Canada, do you think the industry has and the funding bodies have kept up or is it completely off their radar? Most of it's private. I think there are some funding bodies for like, if we're talking about arts and culture journalism, Canada Council, Ontario Arts Council, Toronto Arts Council, I think all like have, they do fund some presses, but it's usually stuff that's very particular in its interest. So like a classical music magazine or journal, uh, they're very sort of specific in their their needs and, and what they're asking for there. Those things are available, mostly like the industry is private enterprise for sure. And, and to sort of like echo a comment that was made earlier, it's a lot of it has to do with the consolidation of these businesses. Mm. Um, you know, they're owned by only like two or three huge corporations and they get to have the final say and like what people make and who's in the newsroom and the sort of thing that they're they're kind of ringing this like austerity alarm saying like there's a trouble with monetizing journalism meanwhile the ceos of these companies are still making a huge killing they're not suffering in the way that they've framed this problem to be the model is flawed 
a lot of it has to do with like leadership. And, you know, you look at a, at a magazine mm-hmm. like Now Magazine, for instance, uh, one of Canada's oldest independent weeklies uh, was just recently bought by another uh, corporation, both them and Vancouver's Georgia Strait. And now the oh, fear... Really? is what's happening is that the fear is that they're vulture capitalists, basically uh, saddling these companies with a ton of debt, squeezing out whatever sort of like return and profit they can from these things, and then setting them off to drift and not sort of incurring that debt themselves. That's the, Mm -hmm. the real concern that's happening with these new owners because they don't really have the same commitment to storytelling or the separation between editorial and sales as the previous owners would have. Local journalism seems to have kind of fallen away off the map. You know, we used to have a degree of, we, we've got the, the spec, but it's a, it's a tour star media thing. I, I'm glad to see they have new owners and we'll see what that does to their editorial direction. There's now before the pandemic, a global housing crisis, a tendency towards gentrification, the hollowing out of downtowns and the like going on in the community. How has your community been able to adapt and has there been any coverage of what's going on? Uh, so, so for now, uh, like now magazine is still actively covering things. You know, I think we're lucky. I'm lucky being in Toronto. You know, it's the sort of media center of the country. Country. And so it's the same problem that they have with like in the States with New York or LA. Um, journalists are all consolidated in these two areas. And so they it's easier for them to just sort of like walk outside their front door and see what's going on. So I feel like coverage and criticism of, of what's been happening has been pretty decent for us. But yeah, I definitely think that there's an erosion of local journalism like countrywide. And like kind of roping it back into like music criticism. You certainly see that with like the loss of music focused outlets and, you know, to the point where like exclaim is kind of like the only real national voice when it comes to having like a a publication focused on the exercise of, of, of criticizing Canadian music and, and spotlighting Canadian artists. And so that's, a tall order for one publication to take on. I I really think that we're sort of suffering because there's not a lot of, you know, knowledge about what's going on in Saskatoon or Regina from like for myself as a person in Toronto, uh, there's no real way to sort of like connect people who are curious and really interested in what might be going on. Like one of the best places to read about Canadian music right now is at Bandcamp Daily, which is an American run publication because they understand that they have a global audience and they really appreciate nuance and locality and know the importance that that has. The way they go about different scenes, different uh, demographics, different angles, like it's, it's, it's unfortunately unique. <laughs> yeah. Like I just wrote a thing for them about the punk scene in Charlottetown PEI. They, I think they have like uh, some music press that way, but this was like a nice way to sort of spotlight a very special scene that's going on right now, driven by very young people, like, like late teens, early twenties, kind of putting on punk shows or at least were and starting these wonderful hardcore punk bands and no one else is like talking about it. It's really unfortunate. 
Mm-hmm. We'll have to connect to those pages. Like if you hear of anything, any um, network of, it sounds like we could, maybe that's what they're trying to foster in Bandcamp, but it'd be, it'd be interesting to see if you could almost go backwards to like the fanzines, you know, <laughs> but totally. a local one for each re- each region. Yeah, that would be really great. And I think you hit on something there too, which is part of the problem for like the music press in this moment is that the live music industry is like the pillar for all of, I don't know, not all, let's say 80% of the advertorial that happens, right? So mm-hmm. when I was writing about music for Now Magazine, it was tied or pinned to that band coming to town or that Toronto band playing a show in the city. With live events gone, there's no real re- way to sort of like tie those things together. And a lot of the right. advertisers promoting shows, uh, promoting different events aren't doing it. And so that basically just bottomed out <laughs> the music editor's ability to sort of have a freelance budget and cover stuff regularly. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And of course, with more venues closing too, it's, it's a process that is, once it's broken, there's nothing, I mean, we were talking to um, the guy, Paul Bowen, who's a, a live music guy from, you know, out in LA, the big, huge shows. He's like, well, when you don't have little venues, when they can't, when the little guy can't survive, then you don't get those bands getting honed and practiced in local little dive bars to then get big enough to go to the next, to the medium sized venues, to then have a pool of talent to draw from, to get these huge mega stars, mm-hmm. right? You just, it's broken. Exactly. And with all the vent, the revenue from the music itself, having already been removed, thanks to Spotify and well, Napster started it all. Once the money's gone, the only thing you had was live performance and merch, right? So then the live performance, it's just like, it just seems like it's an endless loop of how the hell do we get out of this? Have you seen um, anybody with like a, with, I don't know, any inspirational stories or or, or people who've launched things or adapted maybe some spaces that are possibly looking at becoming publicly run or having some collaborative collaborative have you heard any tales of that kind of nature in your travels it does seem like this has this moment has provided people with maybe a reason to sort of start collaborating together and but in terms of venues and stuff like that nothing comes to mind in toronto in terms of of people sort of banding together i've seen a lot of like the, the nice thing is that i've seen a lot of like mutual aid efforts coming about so like uh people sort of banding together to help keep a place afloat dakota tavern sort of asking people just to like order drinks and food in lieu of actually being able to show up to a a concert to sort of like keep some semblance of an income in there i don't Mm -hmm. know if it will help them hold on for for very long but there was a nice sort of community response to that there's definitely there's limitations to it when everybody's stretched i know there's venues that are closed or have closed and you know i'm curious to see how things transform one of the things that i think might become more of a thing is publicly run spaces maybe they're run by cities like we have we have one here in hamilton mills hardware which is technically a city own building. And I, I'm thinking we're either going to have more public re, publicly run spaces, we're going to have more branded spaces, maybe it's like collective arts. So we have one like that here as well. But will it kind of drum up more of that 
you know, DIY, maybe it's house shows, maybe it's like bands taking their, their back line uh, with them touring again. Like, yeah, uh, I, like certainly before the pandemic in Toronto, there was a big conversation about turning city owned buildings into spaces that would be like run by more like DIY or emerging sort of promoters or organizations. But I think that that's sort of on the back burner right now for a number of reasons and i think it's it's difficult too because in terms of priorities you know we're looking at a huge homeless crisis like there's a lot of unhoused people Mm -hmm. um and right now there's not even enough like shelters for them to sort of stay in so i think music has become like a, a pretty significant priority for the city but i'm hoping that if there are empty spaces for them to use that it sort of goes in that way in terms of like sponsored things i do i think you have a point there and i think we're already started starting to see that with red bull they Mm -hmm. have festivals that they bring through toronto and montreal pretty regularly it's one of the most significant sponsors and ways for the electronic music community sort of sort of like band together and have like large events that sort of meet their requirements for sound and visuals i think that that's sort of like verging on what we might see in terms of like having more sponsored spaces Mm -hmm. long-term. This week we had something brand new for you. Here's Giants with a J and their track, Some Kind of Loser.
was Giants with their track, Some Kind of Loser, released only five days ago, brand, brand new. In this time of need, it's important that we support musicians and those who power live events. The show notes list ways to get involved in the many efforts underway towards getting the shows back on the road again. And now, back to the How Now interview with Michael Rancic. We were chatting to Sean Garrison, or Sean Bowering from the Garrison, and he's uh, talking about building like a little tiny film studio just in the back of one section so that bands can make a video or, you know, live stream something because it looks like it could be a while (laughs) that we're all still getting our entertainment this way. So I thought that was a really cool innovation, you know, and the idea that you could really have, you could have different sponsors, you could rotate them for different events. Yeah, it'd be really interesting. But I understand you've co-founded a multi-stakeholder cooperative yourself called New Feeling. And did this emerge out of the pandemic or when did that start? Yeah, like I was sort of saying before, I lost out on like a good portion of the work that I would have had had the pandemic not happened. And I was still getting some work in, like I sort of uh, worked sort of three months in advance. So I was able to ease into things. It wasn't as as sort of an immediate cut. But as soon as the government sort of said that uh, freelancers and self-employed people could also collect CERB, I was like, okay, I will collect it as well. But I was really into the idea of treating it like a wage. And so I had contemplated the idea of starting my own newsletter because a lot of my peers mm-hmm. um, who are Substack. in the same situation, yeah, on Substack or Tiny Letter. But, you know, I just kept thinking about how am I going to stand out if I'm competing with, you know, 20, 30 of my peers and we're all on Substack or Tiny Letter. I'm already overwhelmed by the amount of emails I get my inbox why would i want somebody else to go through that as well uh, and who would like why would somebody subscribe to my newsletter if i'm competing with other individuals and so i thought okay why don't i take this idea but why don't i see you know instead of other people also starting their own newsletter why don't we just work on something together and then we can actually build something that's maybe a bit more sustainable so that's so cool i had that thought and then i saw a tweet from a musician uh, simone schmidt also known as Fiverr, that pushed me into action. It echoed a lot of my feelings. So I put out a call for anyone who wanted to work on building something together. And New Feeling was born from that. So we are a multi-stakeholder cooperative. What that means is that, you know, there are are many different kinds of cooperatives. Uh, More often than not, you hear like a worker cooperative. Multi-stakeholder allows for two or more memberships and they can often be conflicting or complementary. So we knew that as a cooperative, uh, we could certainly organize and be a bunch of writers sort of banding together, but we also wanted somebody to be accountable to, which is the the sort of other stakeholder part where we, we want to start involving community. So allowing people who aren't writers to join and then have, you know, also co-own this thing and you know, have a say in our, our direction, who we cover, what our values are, that sort of thing. And we've already been sort of demonstrating this sort of like commitment to our community in a lot of ways. So one of the first things that you do as a cooperative or really for any business that you're, you're starting out is you're supposed to put out like a survey, like a, do a needs assessment basically mm. of mm-hmm. whether your idea is worthwhile, whether it makes sense for you to actually start this thing. So back in June, we put out a survey to our ideal potential readership, asking them their thoughts about what they'd like to see from a Canadian music covering publication, uh, what what they don't like about the places that currently exist. And we learned a lot from that. So it confirmed a lot of our feelings so far about 
A, this is something that is is definitely needed. Um, and then two, that we need to sort of come at it from a different perspective. And being a cooperative, I think, really helps inform that in a lot of ways. A, just like us working together and, and sort of having a major stake in what this thing is by being owners of it. And yeah, owning it and being members and having a say in this question and control is, is you know, the main reason why I think it, it helps sort of separate us from, from other places. I've always loved the the cooperative model and i i know there's different forms was there an example that you were kind of referencing when you created new feeling we didn't set out to be a cooperative um we knew that we wanted to be a collective of people we knew that we liked the idea of being non-hierarchical in our and how we're choosing to organize and so that means like we have no bosses and we're our own bosses that impetus that that sort of idea really was reflected in the cooperative model uh because it's at its root you know one person one vote it's all about sort of democracy and we really liked that idea and the more that we looked into it there were a couple that like really stood out to us one of them is ampled it's an american run cooperative based out of new york and they're sort of positioning themselves as an alternative to Spotify and a little bit like Patreon in a way. So if you're an artist, you would create an Amplet account. Fans could then sort of subscribe, pay a a sort of monthly donation to that person's page, get things like demos or lyrics or, you know, an early preview of new material. um, And then perhaps like the final material when it comes out. Um, And the, the, I, I, I'm not, 100% 100% sure about this, but the, the artists and, and staff are certainly all owners. So once you're an artist on with a page on Ampled, you sort of become a co-owner. And I, oh, I'm not 100% certain about this, but I think if you support an artist, you also become a co-owner. I can't remember off the top mm-hmm. of my head, but okay. they had a really like elegant model. They, ex- they explain things in a really sort of, in a, in a way that seemed very uh, vital and and of this particular moment, whereas a lot of the literature that exists right now about cooperatives is, is you know, when you think about a co-op, you think about like your local, like a, a small grocery store, or you think about mm-hmm. mountain equipment yeah. co-op, you don't necessarily yeah. think about it RIP. in terms of music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's Maybe. true. You don't think of music. <laughs> writers just banding together that's so awesome you could replicate that in any genre or all genres you could just have writers banding together totally and and that's the thing you don't think about it but there is a history there so the more i looked into cooperatives and cooperative organizing cooperatively the canadian press was up until very recently a cooperative of newspaper owners wow. uh they since changed direction like mountain equipment co-op and gotten rid of the cooperative model but they based their own model off of associated press in the states mm. again another a bunch of owners of newspapers all coming together uh to sort of form a dedicated newswire that each of them could rely on so most mm. canadians get their news from a source that started out as a cooperative do you think this could be like a revitalization a point of change or disruption to the journalism field at its kind of bottom is 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 there a hope that you know revitalizing the co-op could be that solution i think so so throughout history as people have sort of turned to the cooperative model it's been in times of incredible sort of like difficult economic conditions so 
the real sort of uptick in people creating cooperatives most recently was the 2008 financial crisis. There's a lot of already enthusiasm for cooperatives, and we're seeing that in the tech sector. Um, so normally what you do is when you're creating a startup, it's just with the sort of like ultimate means of having someone else buy you out and cashing out. But what if you want to build and create a product or a platform? Yeah, exactly. Uh, if, if What if you want to create something and you don't want to cash out or sell it off? The cooperative model is like a perfect way to sort of like build in that structure of, of maintaining ownership because you can't be bought out by a larger party. And that's also what sort of drew us as writers to this because we've seen so many places that we've written for shut down by new ownership or a change in direction, you know, most recently with Now Magazine, but we just wanted to sort of kill that idea on the doorstep. We, mm-hmm. we yeah. are, you know, it's not to say we're not interested in investment or other sort of people being involved, but investing to own and completely changing the idea is not what we're into. Cool. The idea of criticism comes up a lot. Where do you draw that importance from and, and why is that such a motivator to new feeling specifically? Yeah, I use I like using that word because to me it, it is neutral. It means like engaging thoughtfully in people's work. I know with a lot of the younger writers, even and especially with musicians, when you say like criticism or criticized, it has a negative connotation. But but that sort of everything's very positive. Like you look at exclaim and you look at the reviews that they generate, for instance, you're not going to find something that's lower than a six when people are reviewing stuff because of the way that the magazine operates. And that's Mm -hmm. writers pick and choose what they want to review. And they're usually enthusiastic about the things that they've chosen. Um, And that makes sense. But there is a greater sort of culture around positivity and liking things. And that's uh, certainly influenced by technology and social media. And it becomes incredibly difficult for people to sort of say anything that's contrary to the yeah. norm. You know, you look at the way that people react to Rotten Tomatoes reviews and, and, and skewing somebody's score. And so for me, I think you can be critical and not necessarily negative. And I think that in my experience, people have really valued just being thoughtful about their work. That was kind of what has continued to motivate me about writing about emerging artists. When I was writing frequently for now, we would do this column uh, that was called Now Playing, and it coincided with a playlist. And I would just highlight individual songs by new artists. And the great thing about that was, is that you don't need to have an album out in order to be considered for this thing. And so I was really able to focus on brand new talent and regularly people were so happy to see their song written about in print and you know have their lyrics engaged with in a way and and like really sort of understood i i could see in in their reactions to that that like that was really fulfilling to them as artists and i think that that's a motivating factor for us at new feeling you know there's like i was saying at the outset like i was inundated with emails and press releases to talk about music and having no place to write about it. There's so much going on right now that's interesting uh, in in the country that no one is talking about. And we really want to be a home for that. And we really want to be a home for that in in a way that it can be sustainable. That's great. I guess like where I, I wanted to leave it off was is there, has there been any, anyone that you've seen in your community that's like use this moment in time of struggle and, you know, devastation in a lot of ways to make a a radical shift? 
Uh, that's a good question. Um, I see a lot of musicians sort of rethinking their careers. Um, and like me, I think that those seeds were probably being sown prior to the pandemic. You know, we talked about earlier about how live music and merch were kind of like the, the boons of, of, and really the, the sort of pillars of, of the music industry, but a lot of people still weren't able to make a living that way. And I don't think it's going to improve after the pandemic. I think we're, it's going to take a real sort of rethinking and, and having this step back, I think will help us sort of see what we value about live music and performance and, and art overall. And I think this is a really interesting time because it, you know, if you're able to access the supports like CERB and, you know, not having to work a job that you hate just to sort of survive, that's a really great opportunity for somebody to sort of th sit and think about what they want to do next. And I think for a lot of mm -hmm. musicians, that's, you know, really contemplating what, what their future looks like. I haven't seen too many sort of radical changes. I, I do want to sort of like commend a lot of people who are in the music industry, how they've sort of reached out. Like there's the encampment support network here in Toronto, and there are a group of individuals, a lot of whom are musicians who are bringing supplies and and food and helping support people who are living in encampments right now. So our shelters are overcrowded. Unhoused people are being very careful about, you know, wanting to keep a distance yeah, uh, mm -hmm. and not get sick. But that means that they're living in, in public places. And throughout the summer, you know, the city wasn't turning on water. They had no access to like basic sort of needs. And so the encampment support network has has sort of formed in, in reaction to this and, and in a way that the city has not responded. And that is like a real, I think, regardless of, you know, how long the pandemic lasts, I think that is something that has probably fundamentally changed a lot of people who have gotten involved with it. Mm. And I think that it will continue to motivate a lot of advocacy, advocacy work around the housing crisis here in Toronto, because it's pushing out artists as well, right? It affects us all. Yeah. And that is something that I would have liked to have seen more of prior to the pandemic, but sometimes it takes something as terrible as this to sort of shake people out of, uh, you know, whatever stupor you're in or whatever level of comfort that you're in. And I can certainly say that about myself too. Like, I think that what we were doing before is not sustainable. And that goes for mm -hmm. journalism, that goes for the music business, that goes for the housing, <laughs> Food in general, production, the environment. Yeah. Right. So this is really a moment to rethink all that. And mm -hmm. I'm personally enjoying having the opportunity and privilege to be involved in that. And I, I have really a great sense of the potential for something like New Feeling and cooperative organizing in general. And even if New Feeling doesn't last more than a couple of years, I think that uh, it will still have been successful because I think that we're really trying to push this idea of how much we can accomplish together cooperatively and what organizing like that looks like and how it can look like. And, and that is really inspiring and motivating to me. It's a fascinating awesome. model. I'm really looking forward to seeing how, how it unfolds and keep, it, keep in touch because, well, once you've got it, you've already got it up and running. So we'll just have to be following you all your channels. Yeah, it's, it's, it's up online right now. We're, we're still in the midst of um, incorporating and uh, putting together all fun, the fun things like bylaws and policies and stuff like that. And, and right now we're taking a really sort of hard look at with the help of a steering committee that we have to sort of help right. shape 
those things and come up with a, a revenue model that might make sense and might help us pay for <laughs> things. Well, thank you so much for for uh, joining us. Uh, that was a good little chat. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. And you won the ad. No, I was, I'm, I'm really happy that you asked us. And that's it for today's episode. If you'd like to get more information about Michael or New Feeling, you can subscribe to our Substack or follow us on social media. If you or someone you know has a great story of adaptation, make sure you email us at hownowpod at gmail.com. As always, a big thanks goes out to our guest, Michael, Neil Woodley for graphic design, Tom Hammerton and Tyler Bershey for creating our theme, Giants for the music, and all of you for listening. You can follow us wherever you find your podcasts. Next episode airs April 31st. Until next time, keep adapting.